Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello, everyone. And today it's my great pleasure to be talking with Julian Treasure. Hello, Julian. Hi, good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to be in this conversation with you because I really sense that our work is complementary and we're both absolutely passionate about both speaking and essentially listening as a means of creating more conscious speaking and communication. And yes, I, so I would love to just share with everyone a little bit about you and also, of course, about your latest book, How to Be Heard, Secrets for Powerful Speaking and Listening. So everyone, Julian is the author of the book Sound Business as well, a manual for effective sound use in every aspect of business. And his most recent book, How to Be Heard, is based on his TED Talk, which offers practical exercises to improve communication skills and an inspiring vision for a sonorous world of effective speaking, conscious listening and understanding. Julian speaks globally on this topic. He's chair of The Sound Agency, a firm that advises worldwide businesses, offices, retailers, airports on how to design sound in their physical spaces and communication. He asks us to pay attention to the sounds that surround us. How do they make us feel? Productive, stressed, energized or acquisitive? Julian is a highly rated international speaker on the effective use of sound in business and his five TED.com talks have been viewed over 80 million times. His latest is in the top 10 TED talks of all time and the sound agency works with major brands worldwide asking and answering the question, how does your brand sound? I love that. I just love that. Proving that good sound is good business and pioneering the use of generative soundscapes in branded spaces like shopping malls and offices. Well, this is amazing, Julian. You know, I remember when I first heard your first TED Talk, and now you have one on your website where you're analysing much more deeply how to create conscious communication. And I just was captivated by your capacity to be really concise about what is more important than anything. <laughs> so I'm thinking today it would be just gorgeous to really explore with you 
what it is about this extraordinary work that you have constellated that is meeting the needs of a humanity that is living in unprecedented times and really how all of this contributes to a more compassionate as well as conscious communication worldwide as well as in our everyday personal lives. Sounds good. There's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there are so many benefits. You, You know, in your book, you talk about the benefits of conscious speaking and listening. You speak about the obstacles. You speak about listening, listening experiences, and also how empathetic listening skills are really a key, along with storytelling, to really conscious, compassionate listening. So I'd love it if you'd like just to share with us a little bit about the benefits to start off with from your understanding. Well, I think the first thing to understand is that speaking and listening are not linear. It's not I speak, you listen. They're in a circular relationship. It's a dynamic circle. It's changing all the time. The way you listen affects the way I speak. The way I speak affects the way you listen and so on and so on. So it's a big mistake to think that it's a simple process of knocking the ball over the net. It's not that simple. And the effect of becoming a master of these two things, and there's a third thing in play as well, actually, in in my work. I mean, it's not just the speaking and listening. It's also the context in which those things are happening, which very often is sadly working against effective communication, noise, uh, distractions, and so on and so on. Those three things have dramatic effects on our outcomes in life. And I boil it down in general to three other things which are relatively important, which is to say your happiness, your effectiveness, and your well-being. All three of those things are profoundly affected by how well you speak, how well you listen, and the sound that you surround yourself with. And uh, most of us don't think much about that last one. Right. So it's all incredibly important. And, you know, the sad thing is that these skills, and they are skills, not capabilities, speaking and listening, they're skills, uh-huh. are not taught in school. Right. We don't, we, we don't even acknowledge them as skills, really. I mean, most people confuse and conflate hearing and listening. They think they're the same thing or they operate in the same way, and they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. And, of course, speaking using this amazing instrument that we're all blessed with, the human voice, is so fundamental and yet something that basically doesn't get taught. We're expected to pick it up as we go along. It's like all of us having to be, you know, self-taught concert pianists. And it's not easy without teachers, without people showing you how to do it, without understanding the mechanics, what I call the vocal toolbox, all the amazing things that you've got that you can play with and optimize and practice and extend in order to become a master of this tremendous instrument. So that to me is the tragedy that we don't teach children, A, that these are skills and B, how to use them and how to become a master of the skills. Right. That's so important. Just say a little bit more about the distinction between hearing and listening. Well, you hear everything and hearing is incredibly important. It's your primary warning sense. You know, there is not a vertebrate on this planet that doesn't have ears. Mm. And there are quite a few that don't have eyes. Hearing is the way that you sense danger, opportunity and so forth. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm not very good at seeing what's behind me, but I can hear it. (laughs) So the ears are incredible. I mean, they're extraordinary. When you think about it, it's a little membrane the size of your little fingernail 
called the eardrum inside each of your ears, which vibrates, you know, sound enters your head. It's a very intimate sense. So the sound enters your head through your ear and vibrates this tiny little membrane, which decodes everything from an explosion to Beethoven's ninth in exquisite detail, uh, vibrates three tiny little bones, which are rattling in there thousands of times a second amazing engineering. They don't go wrong. They do that for decades and decades. And they (laughs) vibrate another little membrane, which pushes fluid back and forth, which vibrates hair cells, which are all tuned to specific frequencies. And they trigger neural impulses, electricity going into the brain. And your brain then miraculously puts all of this together as sound. It's just such a miracle, isn't it? It is. It's a, it is absolutely extraordinary as a sense. And yet that's a capability. You know, we all have, well, a lot of people don't have that so well. And then sadly, we are seeing lots of hearing damage now. There's a, uh, a global pandemic, uh, another global pandemic of noise-induced hearing loss, largely through headphone abuse. People are putting headphones in their ears and having 80, 90, even 100 decibels of music going in for hours and hours, flattening those poor little hair cells, and they don't grow back once they're destroyed. Many of us have been to a gig, you know, come out with our ears singing, Well, that's called a temporary threshold shift. And as long as you don't do that too often, you'll be okay. But if you're putting loud sound into deep into your ear canals for hours a day, that is immensely destructive. So hearing loss, you know, we may be raising an entire deaf generation. I think it's one in six American teenagers are suffering from noise-induced hearing loss in this way. Wow. So there, there'll be millions of people tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions in the world who have got hearing impairment of some kind, and it'll be getting worse over time. But Mm -hmm. if you can hear well, it's such a gift and such a blessing. And it is not only your primary warning sense, but it's it's a way you place yourself in space. Mm -hmm. As you're aware of the tiny sounds from all around you, you you can hear the acoustics of the room you're in, movements of people or whatever. It places you in spirit as well, because, you know, I, I don't know of a spiritual tradition that doesn't have somewhere at its centre quiet contemplation, listening, uh, being still, being at peace, mm. as opposed to making a noise, you know, intensity and distraction and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a very, very important sense. So the French philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy said sonority, by which he meant listening, actually, in this context, mm. sonority is time and meaning. Wow, I love that. So that that moves us on to listening, which is a different thing. Listening is an activity. It's a a skill. You do two things when you're listening. You select certain things to pay attention to out of all the things you can hear. You're hearing everything all the time. You have no earlids. Your ears are working even while you sleep. And yet some of it you discard, some of it you pay attention to. And then the second thing you do after selecting is you interpret or make meaning. Mm. So my definition of listening is making meaning from sound. Mm. And we all do that in a different way. So, you know, one of the most profound revelations that comes out of the work and the training, my course, my book, everything else, is your listening is unique. Mm-hmm. It's That's- as unique as your fingerprints your voice print, your irises, it is unique because you listen through a set of filters Mm -hmm. and only you have traveled your road to the here and the now. Right. 
Right. And those filters are different from person to person. And of course, our listening changes over time. It changes when we've just woken up. It changes when we've just had a meal. It changes when we're upset or happy. It changes when we're tired. You know, it's it's a different listening through the day. It's a different listening from person to person. And that is really important to get. And one of the most common mistakes made in communication is the assumption everybody listens like I do. They don't. <laughs> That's very true. I'm right, you're wrong. You know, I have the final word on things. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Well, um, being right, of course, you, you know, you just mentioned one of the most enormous obstacles to listening that exists in the world, and it's getting worse. It's been ramped up by orders of magnitude right. in the last 10 or 20 years by social media. Being right. Yes. Being right. Because yeah. the easiest way to be right is to make somebody else wrong. Mm-hmm. And people are getting addicted to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's behind media outrage, you know, the outrage addiction everywhere. Somebody's to blame. Somebody must be punished. Mm-hmm. Social media shaming. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen John Ronson's brilliant TED talk on social media shaming, I, I do recommend everybody watches that. It's chilling. Okay, um, yeah. Well, thank God for Rumi at that point. You know, his wonderful poem, Out Beyond Ideas of Wrongdoing and Rightdoing, There is a Field. Mm, you know, the field beyond, uh, yeah, the field yeah. beyond is very important, but not many people get there, you know, yeah. far more people are interested in lobbing rocks at each other on the other side of the wall and yeah. never get to the field beyond, well, it and that, that's unfortunate. It does seem to be changing. The less media I watch and the more I listen to people, the hundreds of thousands of people that are now coming online to use the internet appropriately to share what I call spoken song, which is really mystical love poetry, starts to shift people's capacity to listen and to maybe merge those filters between listening to our spoken voice versus our singing voice. I mean, it's fascinating to me that we seem to have separated those two realms of communication. So people like there are millions of people running around thinking that they haven't got a voice and when you ask them what does that mean they'll say I can't sing Mm. you see and then you go well just tell me what's your name they tell you your name and then they go okay so just slow that down the sound of your name and then they slow it down and I said just listen to the pitch of that and you start to hear the pitch which is the sonorous pitch you were speaking of earlier behind the apparently spoken sound and then slowly but surely something happens there I think where the spoken joins in a seamless way with the sung and then they hear the pitch and then they're shifting from left brain to right brain, everything's joining up and the soul of the individual, the soul of the sound starts to emerge and that connection with the notion that, you know, I'm not just an intellectual brain speaking here, I'm a, I'm a soul, I'm a soulful human being. Well, I'm uh, very committed to the idea that sound affects us profoundly, all sound. Yes. Music is, is a very powerful sound, but all sound affects us profoundly. It changes right. our bodies, changes our emotions, changes our thinking, right. changes our behavior. Yes. And uh, singing is very important, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you've read the very interesting book by Stephen Mython, The Singing Neanderthal. Yes. Um, yes. So his yeah. theory is that we sang long before we spoke. And in Love the, that. the invention <laughs> of language is what caused music to be kind of sidelined off because it, before it was communication mm. and uh, it, mm. it lost its core purpose when we invented language, which is probably 100,000 years ago, right. using complex language. Um, incidentally, we've only been reading and writing for about four or 5,000 years. So it's very, very recent. And that's one reason why I'm 
really kind of slightly regretful about the obsession that people have with fingers and eyes now with communication. You talk about communication, people think of text and email and everything's written. There's a screen involved, there's a device in our hand and so forth, um, which again is challenging the skills of speaking and listening, which are the oldest ways in which we have communicated and still, I believe, the most powerful so, you know, I think it's a great thing to be in touch with music. I am a musician, as you know, and, you know, my daughter, Holly, who's six, sings her way through life. She's singing almost all the time. Oh. Wonderful to listen to and very powerfully, too. She's going to be a great singer when she grows up. But uh, that, that kind of freedom we really encourage. And it's so sad to hear people say, I can't sing. As you say, if you say that to somebody in a, in a tribe in the Amazon, uh, they'll look at you and think, what? It's like yes. saying, I haven't got any legs, you know, yeah. everyone's <laughs> It's, it's, it is, it's very, very strange. I mean, it is changing. And obviously in our work with the naked voice, the naked voice itself is really that voice, which is, as you were saying at the very opening, is really at the source of sound itself, which embraces all speaking, all singing, all expression, all sounding out, you know, in whatever form, in whatever language. Yes, and that's really, I mean, it's it's half of the equation because, of course, free speech and gorgeous singing and brilliant speaking mm. are completely meaningless if nobody's listening. Right. So that is the other half of the equation. And a large part of the point of my work is that focusing on one side is not enough. You know, in order to be a great speaker, we need also to be a great listener Yeah. because we need to appreciate that skill and help others to develop it. Uh, you know, speaking to people who aren't listening to us you know, sometimes it's our fault. We're not speaking well, but mm. many times it's the fault of the other person who's distracted or busy or got FOMO going on, you know, the, the yes. modern paranoia. So it, it is really important to be a beacon for listening in the world and help other people to listen. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited. I mean, I think the TED Talks have been seen by more than 100 million people now. And the, the reason that that's exciting to me is that those are pebbles in the pond, and every one of those pebbles, every one of those 100 million people who've seen the talk on mainly the one on speaking, but quite a lot on the one on listening, actually one fifth as many, the one on listening, which tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah, every one of those pebbles has got ripples around it, you know, in their family, in their colleagues. If they start to listen better and communicate better, these things actually cause ripples. And well, that's a lot of people, hopefully, who are communicating better, which I find very inspiring. Me too. Oh, no, it's very, very exciting. I love how in your book you start with your early years, just remembering your childhood years, you know, and your connection with the river and with the nature around you and how prominent that was really in, in the evolution of your own listening at home. Yes, well, my friend Bernie Krause, who's probably the world's leading nature sound recordist and yes. a long-time wow. musician for years before that, Bernie distinguishes three kinds of sound, which is quite a nice way to look at the world. There's biophony, which is the sound of animals. Yes. Uh, there's geophony, which is the sound of the planet. So yes. it's water, wind, volcanoes. And then there's anthropophony, which is us, mainly noise, unfortunately. Those three are very interesting to consider. If you put together biophony and geophony, you get what now is becoming known as biophilic sound. Yes. And biophilia is becoming a huge thing in interior design now, which I'm very glad about. I did a fascinating interview for the Sound Agency's new podcast series, which is coming out shortly with a guy called Oliver Heath, who's a world expert in biophilia. And so interesting to hear this is actually 
really taking root, you know, making a connection back with nature yes. instead of hermetically sealing ourselves away from nature and having nothing of it in our buildings. Yes. And of course, if you're doing biophilia for the eyes with plant walls or pictures or whatever it might be, plantings, why not do it for the ears as well? And that's why we've created Mood Sonic, these biophilic generative soundscapes that are designed to enhance well-being and productivity in workspaces. Right. And, um, first trials in the world. We launched it just in time for COVID, sadly. But the initial trials, which are happening with some really big companies around the world, are fantastic. We're getting 90% plus approval ratings from people. So, you know, connecting people with the lovely sounds of nature, birdsong, gentle water, uh, other animals, you know, wind in corn, wind in leaves, these beautiful sounds yes. is really proving to enhance their well-being and their productivity. So it's so great. Right. That's so beautiful because you mentioned also, I know in your book, you mentioned uh, that beautiful project in California, the mayor of California, basically reducing the crime rate by bringing speakers into the downtown area. Is that right? Yeah. Lancaster up in the yeah. Mojave Desert. Yes, I went there and visited it and the, uh -huh. the shopkeepers love it. It was like 80 loudspeakers down the main boulevard in, in amongst the trees. Uh, yes. with loudspeakers with a gentle soundscape playing. And the sheriff reported that crime fell 15% after that, which made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That was quite nice. Why is that not mainstream news? It will be. It will become mainstream news. I was allowed to turn off all the music in my local shopping mall in Clifton in Bristol and basically to play one of my albums, which basically was used, in fact, in New York City by DKNY to alleviate fear levels after 9-11. Mm. And they used that music in all their shops, in fact, uh, mm. which was lovely. Anyway, we played this music, which was called Fierce Wisdom, and it just was ringing right through the shopping mall. And some of it involved my standing at the bottom of escalators, singing to people as they were actually literally coming down the escalator. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. The response was just phenomenal. You know, it's, it's definitely catalyzed a great interest and thoughts around doing similar things in shopping malls all over the place. Well, yes. And the only, the only problem with music, I mean, I love music and music like that, deployed like that can be a wonderful experience for people, but you can't run it 24 hours a day or, you know, 12 hours a day or however long they're open because of repetition. That's the issue, right. which is why we settled on generative sound where it's actually made in real time by a computer. It's being performed in real time. There's nothing recorded. The computer is making it up. It's, it's jazzing with the sound generally designed to be in the background. So it occupies a space between music and silence. Silence, of course, being a very, very important sound, but not one we encounter very often. Music being a very powerful sound and one that can be deployed to wonderful effect. Yes. But in between those, not much music is made to be not listened to. You know what I mean? Most music's intention is to be listened to. Not all, but most. And of course, intention with sound is really, really important. The intention behind the sound is absolutely crucial. The intention of these generative soundscapes is, is to be there in the background, like white walls in a room. You don't come in and go, wow, look at the white walls. Right, to yeah. Support you and to yeah. create a feeling of light, bright, fresh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting area to be exploring. And again, you know, they, the unfortunate thing is that in the noise of a typical shopping mall, and, you know, I have done sound audits in dozens and dozens and dozens of shopping malls all over the world. They are not nice, generally. We call it mall mush, the sound. You've got mechanical noise, like escalators, travelators, squeaks, bangs, doors, hums, buzzes, clashes. You've got external you know, pop-ups where people are 
cooking with aluminium and so forth. And of course, the sound of people moving about, talking and so forth. And probably on top of that, somebody's gone, oh, look, we've got loudspeakers. Why don't we play music? That'll be cheerful. So you're walking around hearing... You can't even hear what song it is because the loudspeakers were designed for alarms, not music. They're not capable of carrying it. That kind of cacophony is one of the reasons why I did my, I think it was the fourth TED Talk, which was called Designing With Your Ears. It was a plea to architects to start listening to the spaces that they design, as well as looking at them. Of course, they are terribly ocular. You know, they train for like five years in America and they spend maybe a week, maybe even just one day on sound and acoustics. So it's not surprising that they focus entirely on how a space looks. But very often that means... They design things that are simply not fit for purpose in schools, in hospitals, in hotels, in shopping malls, in offices. Mm -hmm. You know, how many times have we been in a space where we're trying to communicate and it just is impossible because of the acoustics or the noise or whatever else is going on? So that's another thing we have to, you know, fight the fight on. Yes. Getting architects to listen as well as look. I love that. I, I'm talking to some architects at the moment about what happens when you create an octagonal space as opposed to a square space or a, a space that really contains and invites many new frequencies and of sound resonance in, in a building. Mm. Um, you know, it's not surprising, I suppose, that our temples and our religious buildings are all so vertical that they have that kind of connection with the cosmic dimension but it's so interesting isn't it in like the middle east and so on where you have more the as you're saying at the very beginning this you know sound is a circular thing if you sound in a circular building what a different experience that is to Mm. a square one or uh, you know I'm, i'm just particularly obsessed by octagonals i don't know how how that is for you in terms of the architectural design for sound Well, there is a movement now of architectural acoustics. There's a great book on the subject called Spaces Speak, Are You Listening?, which is highly recommended. And some architects are starting to listen now. And you can model as well. I mean, I've been in the the modeling rooms of people like Arup who have got sound systems where you've got like 20 very nice loudspeakers in a circle around you, and they can emulate the sound of a space that they're suggesting be designed so it's a, a virtual walkthrough and you hear the space which is really important because it it allows us to say well is the reverberation time in here appropriate are there any standing waves that we need to consider or flutter echoes or those kind of aspects of sound which generally don't get thought about how many times have we all been in a square meeting room with hard walls it's square you get standing waves because sound just bounces back and forth and right. Depending on the distance, you can get some very nasty sounding waves that are at the frequency of the human voice, uh, just dependent on the wavelength of the sound. And of course, you've probably got a hard ceiling, you've probably got a hard floor, you might have a glass wall, you've got a hard table, hard chairs. What on earth is the hope of having a decent conversation in a room like that? And it just is not fit for purpose. So we do need to think very hard about the design of the spaces and and this is ancient wisdom that you know as you say has got lost people used to use tapestries in castles they weren't there to look at they were there to damp the walls down to make the space habitable yeah because a vast stone room is not going to be uh, at all workable for communication there were churches where as you walked in the the acoustics got tighter and tighter and tighter as you got up to the altar right Um, and as you say large 
religious spaces which tend to have very long reverberation times and the cathedral can have eight or ten seconds yeah. um, well they're there for a, for a purpose and they're not very good but you wouldn't you wouldn't want to give a talk in one of those particularly and how people <laughs> listen to sermons i don't know but for plain song for chant you know for yeah. things like that absolutely yeah. wonderful yeah for, for a sense of grandeur and space and so forth yeah. i don't know whether you're familiar with the music of john tavener maybe but i used to sing for him we we collaborated on various projects he was a byzantine composer very much inspired by the byzantine tradition okay and we met at the uh, russian orthodox church in knightsbridge i don't know if you've ever been there but that is phenomenal as soon as you walk in there you literally almost you feel like you just need to bow your body down because the, mm. the even whether there's music happening or not there's such a, a a history of music happening mm. in there and of a certain kind of music that is very much based on the unchanging note of that orthodox tradition. It kind of moves around, but it's mm. always held within this unchanging note at the bottom. It, the music doesn't necessarily modulate in the same way as it does. Mm. Drone, yes, very important yeah, in exactly. many traditions. Right. There's another another great TED talk actually, which is worth looking at for anybody's interest in this kind of stuff, which is by David Byrne of Talking Heads fame. Yeah, uh, yeah. And his talk is about how spaces and music have influenced one another over the years, how music being performed in different spaces has adapted and how the spaces have adapted to the music as well. So it's quite an interesting one, you know, the difference between chamber music being, I mean, it was called that because it was performed in a drawing room, um, as opposed to the kind of plain song we were just talking about with massive reverberation time and so forth. Yes, that is so interesting. That's another whole interesting area because I've found in, in my own kind of research with this crossover between singing and speaking and how poetry really seems to bridge the gap very often for people that if you just deliver a speech or if the same person then follows that by delivering a poem, the voice will change. It will take on a whole different role, you know. Yes, that's about consciousness, isn't it? Because meter, which is very important in, in verse and in drama as well exists in normal speech but we dismiss it you know we we think that what we're doing is mundane or uninteresting or just speaking and it's never just speaking if you want to speak in power the consciousness is the thing that drives it being conscious as a listener being conscious as a speaker and that really is what my work is all about is becoming conscious in these things as opposed to numb unconscious and just in inverted commas doing it I love that. I love that. And that's really where our work, our respective work comes together in compassion, I would say, because if that consciousness is there, there is hope for a delivery that has a compassionate impact on the receivers, every bit as much as everyone present, basically. Totally. And listening as well. I mean, I talk about the the scale of one scale of listening, what I call listening positions, because you can listen from different places. One scale of those is critical to empathic. Right. Critical is where a lot of people are a lot of the time. It's judging, discerning, discriminating, and, you know, often quite condemning of other people, as opposed to empathic listening, which is going on to somebody else's island, feeling their feelings. And it's said in relationship, we look for three things, to be heard, to be understood, and to be valued. And empathic listening does all three of those. So it's a very important listening position to occupy, especially at home. I love that. Well, there's a a poem that I just have to share with you right now, which goes, The flute of interior time is played whether we hear it or not. What we mean by love is its sound coming in. When love hits the furthest edge of excess, it reaches a wisdom. And oh, the beauty of that knowledge. 
It penetrates our thick bodies. It goes through walls. It has a note as if a million suns were arranged inside it. This tune has truth in it. Where else have you heard a sound like that? It's me who wrote that. (laughs) Well, it's actually a version by Robert Bly, the great um, American contemporary poet. The source is from Kabir, the 15th century mystical poet. Beautiful. Uh, And Robert Bly, check him out. He's like a sort of contemporary, modern-day, nomadic, mystical poet. He sits on a stage with a a mandolin and strums away at it and then ejects, ejaculates almost these extraordinary poetic lines. Mm. I think you might enjoy his work. Fantastic. And obviously the great Rumi poet, you probably know, Coleman Barks. He produced a book called The Essential Rumi which is really his versions of Jalaluddin Rumi's uh, mystical poetry from the 13th centuries. It's so interesting to me how a lot of that mystical poetry from the medieval era, Hildegard of Bingen is another one, mm. is coming back in now and, and is being picked up by artists or just by ordinary people, you know, going, mm. oh my God, we like this language. <laughs> Yes. And, uh, you know, writing, of course, is very important for that reason, because we can't hear Rumi talking anymore, but we can read the words. I mean, I I don't ever want to be shown um, to be considered to be disparaging reading and writing using the fingers and the eyes. It's very, very, very important. Does things that speaking and listening can never do. It's editable. It's it's asynchronous. You know, all sorts of very, very big. And you can publish it, which is you know now becoming much more possible with YouTube and whatever, with SoundCloud, with podcasting particularly which is it's the fastest growing form of marketing in the world at the moment yeah that's going to be a billion dollar industry in america this year absolutely huge no it is it's it's very exciting isn't it yes but nevertheless i mean reading writing are uh, fantastic things it's just that i think unfortunately they've eclipsed they've diminished our appreciation of the absolutely crucial life skills of speaking and listening I couldn't agree with you more. Julian, this has been so rich to have this conversation with you. I know that I will treasure listening back to it, and uh, no pun intended there. <laughs> I'm sure many people enjoy using your surname <laughs> to express the joy of having these communications with you. And, and thank you so much for bringing your relanguaging of of the power of conscious communication into the world. It's thank just you. great. And every success with your new book, How to Be Heard, Secrets for Powerful Speaking and Listening. Thank you. And if people want to get that 50-minute dissection of my TED Talk, it's free, actually, on my website. So just go by www.juliantreasure.com and you can get a download of that simply by popping in your name and email. We'll send you a a link and you can download that. And it's really interesting. If anybody ever has to stand in front of people and speak, there are a whole bunch of tips and tricks revealed in there which are very valuable i think without question without question bless you thank you so much for your work and stay tuned thank you (laughs) thank you so much be very well bye-bye now thanks everyone for listening